The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornwier. And I'm Ryan Hasman. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday, January 13th. 2019, our first episode of 2019, and we're recording it over Google Hangouts because today, this morning, we're all in different locations. I'm in Jasper. Ryan is in Edmonton. And Adam is in. I am in downtown Edmonton. Oh, the exciting downtown Edmonton. One of these things is not like the other day. <laughs> I, I have a better view of the mountains. Yeah. Uh, this and episode, crappier internet. Yeah, well, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, this episode, we'll be talking about. Uh, the Dave Berta Best of Alberta Politics 2018 survey. The results are in. We announced them on the blog uh, just before Christmas, but we're going to talk about them today. Um, what do they mean? Uh, we'll tell you. Uh, before Christmas, the Premier announced the Government of Alberta would issue a request for expressions of interest in the creation of a new oil refinery in Alberta. Is this a white elephant project waiting to happen? The big deal in Bighorn, the big issue that everybody was talking about in Alberta politics last week, we're going to try to cut through all the political noise and tell you what's actually being proposed, what the heck happened with Minister Shannon Phillips and the RCMP, and what have the histrionics from both sides of the aisle looked like. And we'll dig into the mailbag to answer some of the great questions our listeners sent us over the past few weeks. But first, let's dig into some nomination news. With an election expected to be called in the next few months, uh, it's uh, we've had we've been talking about nominations, candidate nominations for the past, basically the past year. But most of the candidate nomination news we've been talking about has had to deal with the other parties, the United Conservative Party and others. Going going into 2019, what we're seeing is the NDP are starting to catch up now for nominations. So from what I from what I've been keeping track, the NDP now have about 37 candidates nominated and have arranged about 20 or scheduled about 20 nomination meetings to take place between now and the beginning of February. So it's clear that the NDP are, are, uh, are pushing into high gear for their nominations. They seem like they're a little bit late, a little bit behind if you're comparing them to the other parties. Uh, but I mean, there's definitely a strategy uh, that all parties take and the NDP decided to, uh, to, nominate, well, to, to nominate closer to the election. What, what, what do you think of this, Ryan? We had some discussion over, over a text group last week about what uh, what this might mean and what some of the NDP strategy around this might be. Yeah, it's it's an interesting strategy for sure. I mean, to be within a couple months of an election call at most, we might be a couple weeks away from an election call, uh, which is something that the Premier herself confirmed just on Friday on uh, Global News, I believe. It's pretty interesting that they have done so few nominations. So if I unpacked it a little bit, I guess procedurally, um, there's some pros and cons to doing it late. But politically, there's definitely um, some pros to doing it this late as well. And one of them that I've been focusing on, maybe with a jaded political lens, is that they have managed to avoid a lot of the controversies that all parties have when they're doing nominations by simply not doing the nominations. So they are going to do what Nicola Machiavelli recommended in whatever year that was. Um, when you have something that's a little bit ugly or a little bit difficult to get through, it's far better, he said to do it all at once. And that way, the pain is over and you don't have to keep living through it, almost like a Band-Aid. You know, and, and the UCP, for all of our 
glorious, beautiful, messy flaws. One of the things that they have allowed is a lot of local uh, races and, you know, pretty, pretty tough contested races. And I think it's probably good, but you've seen uh, a lot of the quote controversies, you know, people coming out saying the race was unfair or that they're not happy with the result or having to redo it. All parties do that. You know, you could make the argument that maybe UCP has more of that than normal, but there is a baseline of just messiness that comes from nominations. And so the NDP, the government have avoided that by just not doing them. So they're going to do them all in basically a very short timeline. So even if there are a bunch of problems or issues, no one will ever know about it because it'll just get swallowed up into one big explosion of, of messiness. They're also not running as many nom uh, contested nominations. So even, even that layer adds some protection politically for the NDP. They're not having as many contested races, which means there aren't as many upset losing candidates. So it, it is a very interesting strategy to leave it this long. I know we had talked earlier, guys, about some fundraising um, repercussions for doing it this long. I don't know really if that's what it is because they don't really fundraise at the local level anyway, but that is another factor. So I guess we'll see it now. Um, how many of those contests that they're about to run, Dave, are actually contested, do you know? Uh, I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure if any of the, the contests that they've announced are contested. They've had a few, uh, I think two or three contested nominations. St. Albert was the big one that everybody was paying attention to because you had two incumbent NDP MLAs running against each other. Marie Renault ended up defeating Trevor Horn. Uh, there was another contested nomination in Northeast Calgary, which is one that's gotten a little bit of attention in the news uh, because there was some sour grapes or some uh, some concerns or questions, allegations, well, I guess allegations of voter fraud, <laughs> but I don't know how serious, but but raised by the candidate who, or the campaign of the candidate who lost the nomination. And that was in Calgary Northeast. Um, we'll see what, what more comes out of that. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, they've been, well, for almost, all, with the exception of those two, two or three races, they've been uh, acc acclamations. It's, it's pretty convenient, isn't it? If you, if you don't want controversy, just don't have elections. I mean, this yeah. Well, one of the interesting things that I've heard that the NDP are doing is unlike the, the UCP who have kind of opened it up to a free for all and, you know, dealt with the repercussions of opening it up as a free for all, the NDP have been, from what I understand, have been doing a lot of intensive vetting before they announce that the nominations are so open. The, the elites are pre-cooking the results or what you're saying. The people have no... Well, they're, they're avoiding the kind of messy con messy controversies and, and, and embarrassing news stories that, that have dogged the UCP basically for the past year. Yeah. Um, and, and by hold, as you said, by holding all the nomination meetings, packing them all in right before the election, uh, if there is any controversy, it basically becomes noise lost in the pre-election shuffle. Right. It's, I mean, I guess I don't know because I don't see the books, but I think you could also make a reasonable uh, observation that they just don't have the same amount of interest in candidates who want to run for them, which is, you know, a part of the story that's very interesting for a majority government. Typically, healthy majority governments would have people falling over themselves to line up for these seats. So, you know, of course, I'm biased, um, but I think it's a bit of both. They, they're vetting people early. They're probably having conversations with some extreme types just to say, you know what, you're better off not running. But I doubt they're also facing the same deluge of people who want to run. You know, the, the, I forget the stat now, but the UCP nomination cycle has seen over 100,000 people vote, which is amazing. In local nominations is crazy. Well, and some people have voted in numerous nominations too. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's definitely, uh, I mean, a different level of interest when it comes to, to the, 
the UCP nominations than the NDP nominations, at least outwardly from what I've been seeing. There's a lot more activity and a lot more interest in terms of people stepping up to run for the UCP. Well, and the NDP are probably reverting to the mean, right? I mean, historically, this is what their nomination cycles would have been like. They wouldn't have had a lot of huge contested nominations. But the difference is they're currently the majority government. So are we going to see a result that goes back to the typical mean as well? Yeah, and it is it is different when you do have a when you're in a position if you're going into an election and you have a majority government, which means that the majority of your candidates are incumbents, right? So I mean there is there is a bit of a difference there. And we you go back to the previous PC regime, and you know PC MLAs would incumbent MLAs would be challenged frequently, but a lot of them would be acclaimed because they were the incumbents. So there's there's a bit of a mix a mix of that, but definitely uh, there's no doubt that there is more interest in in the UCP nominations this, in this uh, this election cycle. And I I'm actually not completely against um, acclamations for incumbents. Like, I think there has to be a mechanism. Well, that's basically what the federal conservative party did. Yeah, they kind of... This round. Like, I mean, they, they, they opened the nominations early and made it very difficult for anyone to actually get organized to run against an incumbent. But if someone was bad enough, or, you know, I hate to say bad enough, but if there was enough... No, no, you can say bad enough. <laughs> if there was a reason, because you, it, it is, it's a fine line to straddle. You know, you have to allow for local democracy to be healthy and robust and actually meaningful. But on the other hand, parties are fighting wars in the capitals and in the parliament buildings. And so if they have to fight wars at home as well, it can be very distracting. So I, I probably lean a little bit more towards the, the centralized, letting the leader appoint some candidate side of things. Whereas I don't want to see it everywhere, but I think I, I'm never going to criticize leaders for appointing the odd candidate or even, you know, for example, themselves. So we've had, there's this old tradition when Stockwell Day entered the house and Joe Clark re-entered the house in 2000, the parties didn't, the liberals even didn't run against them in those by-elections. I think things like that can be pretty healthy, but I'm kind of a traditionalist. So maybe that's not a popular opinion anymore. As Dave mentioned at the top of the show, the results of the Dave Berta Best of Alberta Politics 2018 survey. Gosh, we have to find a shorter name for that. <laughs> <laughs> we're released before Christmas, and we're going to talk to you a little bit about those today. So um, I think we had, was it five key area or key questions that we were asking people? Um, best MLA of 2018, best cabinet minister of 2018, best opposition MLA of 2018, up-and-coming MLA to watch in 2019, and new candidate to watch in the 2019 election. Um, first, before we get into uh, the actual results, were you guys surprised by any of the results that we got? Yeah, uh, I was surprised. And in, in uh, I mean, there were. I mean, this is the second year we've held this uh, this survey, and some of the pe some people who weren't basically weren't even contenders in in the survey last year popped up and and uh, and and won in some cases in in this. Uh, in this uh, this year's survey, so yeah, I mean, there was a there was a little little bit of surprise. Um, I mean, some of them not too surprising. Some of them are you know popular MLAs or popular in their positions or at least have a lot of supporters online in terms of the twenty one hundred people who voted in this in this survey. Um, but you know, I mean, we'll go through the list and and uh, and people, I guess, our listeners can decide whether they're surprised or not if they haven't already read the survey. Sure. Well, let's start with the first unsurprising result. Perhaps the best MLA of 2018 is voted by uh, more than 2,100 readers of Dave's website and the listeners of the podcast was Premier Rachel Notley, the NDP MLA for Edmonton Strathcona. And this is, was her second year in a row. That's right. Yeah, she was uh, she was voted uh, best Alberta MLA of 2017 last year. So, and actually, as uh, as as loyal listeners of the pod will remember, uh, Ryan and I had an opportunity to go and uh, we 
presented the award to Premier Notley uh, earlier this earlier last year or later last year, and I actually did a little bit of an interview. And I think you can listen to the interview. I think it's episode six or seven. We had a sit down interview with Notley and uh, and actually Jason Kenny as well during uh, in that pod. So so I guess congr- congratulations, Premier. Yeah, it certainly also shows. Uh, there's a lot of loyal citizens of the Polo Borough here uh, <laughs> willing, to, willing to vote for dear leader, which I fully, uh, I fully support as a party loyalist myself. But no, I mean, she's great. Uh, she always has been their franchise and she continues to be their franchise. She's their, she's their Connor McDavid and their Leon Dreisaitl. Um And probably their all the other pieces that the Oilers are missing as well put together. <laughs> you just need Rachel Notley to skate with Connor McDavid, right? If they could clone her and run her in 43 other ridings, uh, this election would be looking up. <laughs> well, not, not for 2019. Congratulations, Minister Shea Anderson, Minister of Municipal Affairs for winning Best Cabinet Minister of 2018. In a four-way contest, Shea Anderson edged ahead with 31.8%. Health Minister... And Deputy Premier Sarah Hoffman earned 26.4%. And Children's Services Minister Danielle Larravee earned 21.5%. While Education Minister David Egan, last year's winner in the category of Best Cabinet Minister of 2018, earned a mere 20.1%. Now, were you guys surprised to see Dave Egan not make the uh, sort of sitting at the bottom of that pile of four ministers? Well, he's had a controversial year, but I mean, he's had a controversial career. So I don't know if that's any different than any other 12 months of his professional life. I don't know how good he is. I guess this is somewhat speculation at winning over people behind the scenes. Whereas I think people generally really like Shea Anderson and Sarah Hoffman. I'm not sure if David Egan goes around making friends quite as much as the other two do. So perhaps our audience was just ready for a change. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that uh, that I mean Shea Anderson winning in this in this uh, category, I mean means something bad for for David Egan who did who won last year. I mean I think Shea Anderson is is uh, I mean I think he is a fairly popular cabinet minister. He's a has a bit of you know a bit of a personality. Everybody knows the big beard. Uh, I think that's that's uh, that's one of his uh, one of his brands uh, in uh, in the Leduc Beaumont riding is he's the you know he's the big guy with the giant beard and immediately recognizable. Um, so I think, yeah, I think as municipal affairs minister, uh, he's provided some stability to the, the, uh, the portfolio. I mean, there's been kind of a rotating door during the, uh, the NDP's time in government. I mean, even go back to the, the, the last 10 years of the progressive conservative government, it was a really rotating door portfolio, people coming in and out, uh, ministers coming in and out every year or two. Uh, so I think I get the impression that he's provided a little bit more stability to the, to the position and because he is likable, um, and has a personality that, you know, I think I think a lot of people. I think I don't. I think a lot of people like him. Obviously, our listeners do too. He's relatable, and I also think that you know he had uh, he had some significant legislation that moved through the legislature this this past year around I think the municipal municipal governance act, um, and I know that was a super long term effort that involved you know lobbying for municipalities in Alberta, and so I think I think as far as like a legislative agenda. Uh, Shea Anderson was a big winner in 2018, and I think that's part of the reason why he was recognized as a as the best cabinet minister in 2018. In the best opposition MLA of 2018, for a second year in a row, uh, our our uh, our friend friend of the pod Greg Clark has been uh, been voted best opposition MLA with 54.1 percent of the vote. Uh, Clark placed ahead of Freedom Conservative Party MLA 
Derek Fildebrand from Strathmore Brooks, uh, who got 34.4%, and placed ahead, who placed also placed ahead of United Conservative Party leader and Calgary Lougheed MLA Jason Kenney, who finished with 11.4% of the vote. Ryan, what, what, what <laughs> I think mean, congratulations, Greg Clark. Uh, I'm not, not too surprised that he, uh, uh, he placed best opposition MLA. I mean, Greg, Greg Clark as an opposition MLA has been pun punching above his weight in terms of, of, of the atten media attention he gets and the issues uh, he's able to raise since he became an MLA in 2015. Um, but I was surprised to see uh, Jason Kenney place so you know, place third in the in this. Ryan, where 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 were all your people? Did they not show up to vote? Well, if I had long coat, or did they all vote for Greg Clark? Yeah, if I had long coattails in the Conservative Party, I would probably be an MP right now. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's something else, isn't it? I mean, um, even just the observation that Greg Clark again is recognized as best opposition MLA. That guy would have made a really good leader for that party, don't you think? It's it's a real shame that he isn't there. Sorry, funny, funny thing. Funny thing. <laughs> that's snarky. Um, yeah, you know what? Greg Clark does get more coverage than it would seem to make sense for him to get, and he is able to punch above the noise. A lot of things factor into that. I think a lot of people are happy to see him do well as a shot at the UCP, first of all, or at the other parties. He gets a lot of, like, um, not only online love, but kind of second choice love. So it's easy. Everyone, the two polarizing big parties at either end hate each other. And so they like to see the Alberta party do well to hurt the party on the other side from them. I don't think this is going to translate into anything close to 54% support for the Alberta party in the next election. But I do think, and we've said it before, that in Calgary Elbow, it's going to be a tough race. Now, on the Derek coming in at a strong second thing is very interesting. You know, I guess we have a lot of freedom lovers in our in our audience because we, I mean, you and I barely even talk about the Freedom Conservative Caucus. It's not like we've covered it a lot. So um, either Derek is a really good organizer online or there's some movement that I'm not in touch with. But, you know, congratulations, Derek. You did well. And as for Mr. Kenny, well, he's still not very well known. And, uh, you know, I, I guess people haven't really heard about him yet, but I suspect they'll hear more about him more in the coming months. We'll, we'll give him another year and see how that turns out for him. <laughs> All right. Our up and coming MLA to watch in 2019. Uh, the winner was Jessica Littlewood. She's the NDP MLA for Fort Saskatchewan, Vegreville. And she beat out last year's winner, uh, a popular NDP MLA, David Shepard, who had 37.1% uh, of, of the survey and Jessica came out with 42.3% uh, of the vote in the survey. And uh, third place, uh, definite honorable mention was Layla Goodridge, uh, the Fort McMurray Conklin UCP MLA. She got 20.5% of the vote. I don't know a lot about Jessica Littlewood, guys. Uh, Dave, what's she all about? Well, she's she was first elected in 2015, MLA for, for Fort Saskatchewan, Vegreville. She's currently the parliamentary uh, parliamentary assistant or parliamentary secretary i can't remember which which one which term they use but to the minister of economic development and trade so basically like um darren bylas's junior kind of a junior minister position but not actually in cabinet but extra responsibilities that i'm not sure there's any yeah no, no not, not not necessarily in cabinet but but extra responsibilities it's pretty common for for governments to kind of create these portfolios for backbenchers it's kind of seen as a cabinet minister in training position in a lot of cases or trying to figure out, you know, who strengthen the strengthen your benches. Um, yeah, Jessica Littlewood, she's been, uh, 
uh, uh, yeah, MLA since 2015. Um, she had a little bit of controversy at the very beginning of her uh, very very beginning of the term. She was the I believe she was the chair of the committee that was looking over uh, reforms to the Elections Act and the election finance laws. Um, and there was a bit of controversy around that committee um, back in 2015, 2016. Um, but more recently, um, she has been under fire, last year under fire for uh, really her, her constituency work. <laughs> she's, she's really, uh, wow. re well, no, but re really well known for uh, for being everywhere in her riding, and there was some controversy around the gas mileage that she expensed, which I'm not totally sure what to th what to think of this. Uh, but uh, but she got a lot of attention around expensing. I think the max, the total max of what uh, of what she's able to what MLAs are able to expense in terms of gas mileage. And there was some there was some questions around could she have actually uh, could she have actually used that much gas mileage uh, in her riding. I mean, she must be doing stakeholder work well because even on our announcement, she yeah. had a couple of her mayors in town yeah. Twitter accounts actually congratulate her. But to be clear, and I, I hate to pick on Jessica Littlewood, she claimed over 80,000 kilometers a year. And there's a post here that I just pulled up to put it in perspective. 80,000 kilometers a year means that she would have to drive 210 kilometers on 365 days a year. So every single day, she would drive. 210 kilometers i mean yeah she's clearly doing a lot of constit work yeah but if she's driving that much i mean we all thought right away of uh former mla david Zhao, who lived in a suburban edmonton riding and claimed like enough kilometers to drive to the moon and back or something crazy and it was like clearly not possible with jessica littlewood it's right on that line like it might be possible mm -hmm. i don't know though if an mla is spending two three hours in the vehicle literally every day like 365 days a year that might be a little much now some comparisons here were that let me see here medicine had mla and energy critic drew barnes um claimed about fifty thousand kilometers and medicine has a lot further away from the capital than port saskatchewan is uh nathan cooper was about the same you know, I'm not a guy who critiques expenses, especially not when it's for something like driving out to your communities and seeing your constituents. But boy, she's driving a lot, like a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's actually kind of scary. I know in one of her interviews, she said she drives a big truck so that she feels safe. Well, having a minister drive 200 kilometers every day is probably getting to the point where it's not even really safe for her. So anyway, I feel a bit like a, like a bore for bringing it up, but um, well, I, I think I, I think I brought it up because I thought it was important to bring up because it is something she did get attention to attention for. Um, I mean that said, uh, I mean she does. It's pretty clear if you follow her on social media, she's doing a ton of constituency work. She's out in every community all the time, um, and she's from what I hear, she is well liked. I mean, we had a number of, of municipalities like Vegreville and Bruderheim. I think was the other one that that retweeted or shared shared this on Facebook and congratulated her. So so she is well liked, um, and she does work hard. Yeah, um, and she it's not like she had strong connections to the writing. I mean, my understanding is it's not like she was a known activist who spent a lot of time in all these communities. Like she was pretty new to the writing when she got elected as their MLA. So mm -hmm. she's clearly able to to build relationships and to build connections. And um, when when town councils go out of their way to congratulate their MLA for winning awards, it does say something. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So up and coming MLA to watch in 2019, 
Jessica Littlewood, congratulations. So the next and final candidate for this year was called New Candidate to Watch in the 2019 Election. And of course, we meant the provincial election. We might have to do something like this for the federal one. This was a new category we introduced this year to recognize some of the new candidates running in this year's expected provincial general election. Janice Irwin, the NDP candidate in Edmonton Highlands Norwood, won this category with sorry 45.9% of the vote. Janice was followed by Edmonton, sorry, Calgary Elbow NDP candidate Janet Arem, Aramenko? Aramenko with 29.6% and Calgary Varsity NDP candidate Anne McGrath with 24.4%. So that's interesting. And, you know, Anne McGrath is definitely a star candidate um, on the NDP side. But Janice Irwin is as well. She was actually also uh, a one-time co-host of this exact podcast. So She was. She's a friend of the pod. I believe she is the representative of the NDP in Dave's home riding. And yeah, uh, yeah you know, she's she's done well to build her name and to get ready for that election. I, I, I think that just about everyone in the world would predict that Edmonton Highlands Norwood goes NDP next time. Or another way to put it is if the UCP is winning that seat, we probably have 85 MLAs. So no offense to our candidate there, who I'm sure will put you know put their heart into it. But um, Janice, you did well to um, stop that nomination by basically it would look to me like scaring everybody else away. Uh, well done. Dave, are you excited about uh, Janice as a candidate in your writing? I, I am very excited about Janice Irwin. She is an excellent candidate. She's a great advocate for uh, for the nor- Northeast Edmonton. Uh, she's one of the hardest working candidates I've ever met, uh, and I think she'll be an excellent MLA. But and, and, and even though it's a safe, it's con- probably one of the closest things you could have to a safe NDP seat in in Alberta. It's basically been the area has been NDP since the 1980s. Uh, I don't think she's going to take anything for granted because she is she is succeeding a. Uh, you know, a very popular longtime MLA, Brian Mason, who's retiring after 30 some years in Alberta politics. Um, but no, I think she, I think she'd be an excellent, she'll be an excellent MLA. Wait, wait, so Dave, you just said a few words that tied together to a story here for me. Brian Mason succeeding her role as an MLA. Do you think there's another role in the future for Janice Irwin soon? Maybe as leader of the provincial NDP? After the next election? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, we, we, we could speculate. Uh, I guess it'll depend, uh, you know, how the NDP do in the next election. I mean, well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure, you know, I, depending on how things go. I mean, I don't expect Janice to be premier after the next election right away. Not uh, right maybe, away. Maybe, maybe a senior cabinet minister after the NDP win the 2019 election. Maybe maybe in 2023, she'll be, she'll be premier going in after Rachel Notley retires after two majority governments. She also has a high-level staff position in the premier's office. Um, she does. So she is someone that has strong connections to the, the center of the hive. And um, yeah, I'm actually not even really making a joke about how they're going to lose this time necessarily. But at some point, Rachel Notley is going to move on. And the next leadership, politicians are always thinking about the next leadership, always, or the two leaderships down from that one. So I wonder if uh, Miss Irwin has aspirations for that or not. And I guess next time she's on the show, I'm going to ask her. You should. And and depending how the next election goes, uh, we may be talking about the uh, an NDP leadership, prospective NDP leadership candidates later on this year, depending on how the next election goes. Or, we, 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 or prospective UCP leadership candidates. Yeah, or or a new hegemon in Alberta politics, the, the new uh, dynasty of the NDP, which will just govern on. For f- the next 44 years. 
So uh, for those of you who need a bit of a recap, there's a great comment on the blog post that Dave made about the results. It says this, just to review, the number three MLA for the year is the deposed leader of a rump party who is currently polling third in his own riding. Second place goes to a man with a sweet beard that approximately 0.00001% of Albertans have heard of. And number one is an ideologically bankrupt premier whose grand bargain of social license has fallen on its face and who now sits on the precipice of certain and total annihilation so that was a great survey dave <laughs> i'm glad it came in as a pretty anonymous. harsh comment <laughs> i'm glad it came in as anonymous here i thought maybe my name would show up on that one so it's, it's <laughs> unless your name is drew ryan thanks, then thanks for the comment ryan yeah. <laughs> well yeah um it's a pretty harsh way of saying some things but i think maybe a more generous reading of this Post this comment is that for a party that has set records in membership, in nomination votes, and in fundraising, the UCP doesn't seem to be very well represented in our survey. And as the resident conservative on this little panel, I guess I have to do a better job. So we'll get you next year, guys. I, yeah. I, I, I can only hope that that in 2019, consider the UCP is as good as getting its vote out as it was in this. Uh, in this survey <laughs> maybe uh maybe we can convince them to give us some money for some facebook ads or, <laughs> or something like that yeah D dm us <laughs> <laughs> okay moving okay. on okay congratulations to all of our winners it's always fun to do this and i hope we get a chance to come out and meet them soon and give yeah. them their plaque and shake some hands and smile yeah and thank you so much to everyone who voted and, and submitted your uh, your choices for for the Best of Alberta Politics survey, we'll uh, we'll have a new survey up hopefully uh, next December, and uh, and perhaps a whole new cast of characters. The Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And one of the shows that's affiliated with the network is actually produced at ATB uh, by myself, Tyler Butler, and economist Nick Ford. It's called We Are Alberta. And it's a new podcast that tells stories of incredible people in places that make up what being Albertan is all about. From oil fields to cannabis oil, Alberta's landscape and economy are ever-changing, and economist Nick Ford is helping to give a voice to those changes. Discover these hidden gems across the province on iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere pods are generally cast. The latest episode of We Are Alberta is all about living life on our border between Canada and the United States in a community called Milk River. Hear Bonnie's story at We Are Alberta. That's atb.com slash We Are Alberta. The Dave Berta podcast is also brought to you by ATB Financial. Creative minds need creative banking, and that's why ATB created the branch for arts and culture. It's a branch that understands that artists don't live by the rules or standard pay schedules of just about anyone else. So you can be creative and not have to worry about your checking account. It's a creative space for creative types in just one more way. ATB will always be more than a bank. Find out more about ATB's branch for arts and culture at atb.com slash the branch. Right before Christmas, and actually right before we recorded that uh, December 24th episode, the Premier actually made a fairly significant political move, and she... Uh, did a press conference where she announced the government would be putting out a request for expressions of interest in the creation of new oil refinery capacity here in Alberta. Um, the deadline for responses to this, I believe, was February the 8th, which is now very close. And 
Um, she said that, you know, it's time to take action and Justin Trudeau isn't getting it done. And so Alberta is going to take matters into their own hands. So I, a couple observations that I have for this is, first of all, this is decent politics for the NDP. I mean, there's a classic labor government, labor party sort of approach to things where they are less interested in trade and more interested in producing things at home. And this applies here too. So at a certain level of analysis, refining at home, refining more at home sounds good. Why not? You have a bunch of workers who are employed, things like that. The economic arguments against this do tend to get more into the ivory tower world a bit where, you know, Andrew Leach and others have put out articles about why it doesn't really make sense, economic sense to refine more here, but at a simplistic analysis, more jobs is good. My, my other observation about this is um, she clearly must have something in the works because you wouldn't so close to an election, you wouldn't risk this announcement if you thought nothing would come forward and no one is going to make a new proposal from scratch on the timelines of this announcement. So you don't put together a multi-billion dollar nine-figure project in four weeks. So they must know that someone was prepared to come forward because I think the worst case scenario would be that February 8th comes and she has to give a press conference with like a tumbleweed going through the room because no one applied. And I guess my final observation is even if you could snap your fingers and have this in place today, this doesn't solve any of the fundamental issues around distribution and pipelines, consultation, or any of those infrastructure issues. So uh, too little, too late. Like, I, I don't think this is a bad thing. I just don't think it'll have any material impact on the on election day. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a, a, a pre-election announcement. I mean, it being so close, I mean, like you said, the expressions of interest due on February 8th, like that's like on the eve of an election or at least very close to the eve of an election call. Um, I mean, I think part of this is, I mean, I agree that I think it's hard to believe that this would have been announced, that not, Premier Notley would have announced this if there wasn't already inter an interest by investors. Like, that's a big, that would be a big deal if February 8th rolled around and there was no one interested. That'd be very embarrassing. And I just can't believe that that any government would put them in, put themselves in that type of position yep. uh, without having something already lined up. Uh, so I think there will be something. I'd be very shocked if there wasn't uh, a big announcement with a new investor uh, lined up after February 8th. Um, I mean, it also... Uh, like you said, it doesn't solve the the problems, or doesn't solve the, solve the issues that are created with with the pipelines being stalled. But uh, it does create some good news, and I think this is something that is would be generally popular among among the population of Alberta. Um, uh, and with with all the you know with the, with the lack of construction and the pipelines being stalled in uh, or the Trans Mountain pipeline being stalled in consultations and having to re-review the, the the impact on on marine tanker traffic that the federal court of appeal said they had to do uh, this does create some news and, and generate some i mean yeah generate some good news for the government um at least before an election when when they were expecting to, to you know basically run on the platform of we built a pipeline well that's probably not going to happen between now and the spring which was so easy to predict like a year ago i'm sure we said you know she's putting an awful lot of eggs in her basket that this pipeline will be built and it'll be tangibly there and ready for her to campaign on yeah. So, so we'll see. I mean, the, the, you know, they said the expression of interests are, are due fe February 8th. We'll see what happens if anything, if anything actually, or what, what if anything happens after the next election when it comes to this? What feels, I was going to say, it just, it feels like the best case scenario here is that she gets to say we had some expressions of interest. Oh, and by the way, there's an election. Like it, it just, I don't know. It's, it seemed overly grandiose for something that I don't think is going to make a big splash. Her own architect of the climate plan, Dr. Andrew Leach here from the Uni University of Alberta, was very upset with this announcement. 
Um, it almost, and I honestly don't know, but it almost seemed like this had been discussed internally and rejected at some point. And then now that the politics are sharpening and the election is looming, they decided to go for the Hail Mary sort of sort of thing. And so, yeah, it seemed a little bit un, um, not like it didn't seem like a long-term solution even in any way. And like when, I think that it would be a good part of the overall toolkit for the Alberta economy to have increased refinery capacity, but it's not going to be anything that helps the economy today or politically helps the government. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's very, there seems to be very little the government could do to actually help the, I mean, help the economy today uh, in terms of, of these big types of infrastructure projects. I mean, we've talked on, in our, on our text group uh, about the pipelines in terms of, you know, even if the Trans Mountain Pipeline were approved today, it would take another five or six years for the thing to actually get built. And who knows what the heck the price of oil is going to be in the next six months or the next or the next five years, right? So there's there seems to be in terms of these big infrastructure projects, um, what, what I'm what I'm not really seeing from from the government or from any of the political parties is how are you going to help? How are you helping the people who are, you know, who are unemployed or having a hard time finding jobs in the oil and gas industry? today right there's a lot of focus on pipelines and that's a long-term more of a long-term project but, yeah. but what are you what are you going to do today and i just I, at least now i don't see really any of the parties really proposing uh proposing stuff that will help people today although uh, so in her defense and in defense of these types of announcements you're also sending a signal to the market which does have repercussions that this is worth pursuing as a career that foreign capital should invest here, that companies shouldn't be looking to pull out. Like these types of announcements can be aspirational and long-term, but they do send signals that are more, more tangible and short-term. If you're looking at where to move your family, I mean, we've talked about this historically. Mm -hmm. If you're growing up in New Brunswick or PEI and you just graduated with your Millwright um, certificate or something, would you move to Edmonton? Would you move to Nisku or Calgary or Fort McMurray? These types of announcements do have an impact there. So it's not like it's, it's completely useless to send good signals to the market. No, no, no. And 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 don't get me wrong. I'm all for more government intervention in the economy and more government, big government oh. investment in these types of projects. I think I think that the, you know that the government of Alberta should be more of a player. And and when you look traditionally, historically at at the Alberta's oil industry and the and the oil and gas industry and the oil sands in particular, is government has always been a huge investor and sometimes. The 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 cattle the investor that that caused the catalyst for for some of the big changes and big positive changes we've seen yeah. in terms of the economy. And, um, I, and so I, so so I mean it kind of it goes against the kind of the, the the Alberta myth that that we're all independent and we all pull ourselves up from the boots our bootstraps and the economy is is, is always better. <clears throat> Pardon me, our economy is because what is it, it is what it is because the government has just stepped aside. Um, but I mean the, the the federal government, the government of Alberta, even the government of Ontario. Uh, in the past has made huge investments in in the oil industry when industry private industry didn't want to because it was too risky but well, the oil sands resource really was an investment from government and universities and yeah yeah absolutely but so you, i i i'm i'm not necessarily opposed i mean it is kind of a it does harken back to the kind of the lawheed era and i think that uh, that you see we've seen notley try uh, notley try to position herself as kind of the 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 successor to peter lawheed a number of times during her uh, during yeah. her um, her term and uh, her first term as premier, um, and I think it'll be interesting to see about whether about just uh, generally in terms of looking at the at the at the positioning as the as the successor to Lougheed about what type of positioning she takes between her and and uh, and Prime Minister Trudeau going into the next provincial election whether she she plays a little bit more hardball which I, I I'm not sure if we have time to talk about this on, on this episode but. 
But uh, definitely in the next episode, going into the next election, we're going to talk a bit about positioning and, and where the parties are, uh, what the parties are saying and what, what the narratives they're starting to create. Just to add one more thing, while generally seeing government interventions in the economy does give me a little bit of a rash, the one place where I'll agree with you here is that the oil sands resource is Alberta's. We own it. And just about everybody agrees that there is a ticking, there's a ticking clock of the value of that resource. You know, like we've joked before, 50 years from now, dilithium crystals or hydrogen fuel cells or something is going to replace fossil fuels. So I think the government, this is why I've been so disappointed with both levels of government on this. We have a resource that's valuable today and it's not going to be valuable in 50 years. So why are we leading with the, the spear pointed at ourselves on like we should be basically maximizing the resource right now. There's a growing worldwide demand um, for oil. And we should be putting those resources. Now, we can decide what to do with them. You can invest it back into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund or whatever. But 50 years from now, that resource won't be on the asset list anymore. And it is right now. And that's what's frustrating about this. So to the degree that I agree with you about government intervention, that would be why. We have a resource. It's not worth anything unless we get it out of the ground. And 50 years from now, it won't be worth anything either way. So what did Sarah Palin say? Drill, baby, drill. Oh, that's going to get some response from our listeners. (laughs) Obviously, I am not talking about uh, drilling in national parks or wildlife. (laughs) Wildlife. uh, Why can't I think of the word? Wildlife protected areas. I don't think there'll be any new drilling in the in the new Bighorn Provincial Park. (laughs) But another issue we want to talk about in this podcast. I was just going to say. But speaking of that, uh, yeah, maybe we can transition to something that kind of exploded last week, which is. The big brouhaha at Bighorn. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think of that? Have you been watching it closely? Yeah, I I mean, I was sort of paying attention a little bit and bumped when Minister Phillips canceled some of the consultations because of a public safety issue. But I, it became very convoluted uh, and ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to give give our listeners a little bit of a of a background on this issue because it is a complicated issue because it's it's it hasn't really been very well explained I think from the government side in terms of what they're doing which is one of my big frustrations with with how the government has handled this so I I, I kind of refer back to a and I, I encourage our readers to read a column by Elise Stolte in the Edmonton Journal who I think did an excellent job in terms of providing background on what exactly is happening like what the government is proposing and then what is actually happening and then looking at looking at the political what the what the political um the the political messaging has been from the different political parties but to give a bit of a background on what it is what this is so in november 2018 the government of alberta released a plan to revamp the bighorn area in western alberta in order to create three new provincial parks and a recreation area so the 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 area we're talking about roughly is east of jasper and banff national parks west of highway 22 roughly south of Drayton Valley and north of Kananaskis. So the area includes the headwaters of the North Saskatchewan River and the Red Deer River, which supply drinking water for millions of Albertans. And the area is now part of the Rocky Mountains Forest Reserve, which is crown land owned by the government of Alberta. And a lot of this area is leased out for grazing leases and there's some oil and gas uh, and different uh, land that, that that's leased out at this point, but it's owned by the government of Alberta. Um, in so in in November 2018, Premier Rachel Notley pledged 40 million dollars to the project, and the government has been asking for public feedback 
until January 31st, 2019. And it's the public feedback part that's been gets, that's been getting uh, that's created this big political storm last week. So there were four public engagement sessions, in-person public engagement sessions that were that 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 Environment and Parks Minister Shannon Phillips announced were going to be canceled last week. And I think there was one in, from what I understand, one in Edmonton, one in Drayton Valley, one in Sundry, and was the other one in Rocky Mountain House? Uh, um, or Red Deer. It was one one of one of the other. Anyway, there was there was another there was there were four in-person public consultation meetings that that the, that Shannon Phillips announced would be canceled due to security concerns. And where where the the issue got muddled is that the the environment minister said that one of the in justifying the cancellation that there were concerns raised by security officials and the RCMP. Well, now it turns out that the RCMP, you know, they've heard concerns, but there were there are no really there are no open cases, there are no open investigations, and it doesn't seem that they actually advised her to cancel or her ministry to cancel the the in in person consultation meetings. So. When she announced that, there was a big blow up in the media. The MLA for the area, which is Rimby, Rocky Mountain House, Sundry, Jason Nixon, uh, really took the minister to task, um, as did a number of local mayors from Drain Valley, from Sundry, uh, I believe. Uh, and the minister had to backtrack and say, actually, I misspoke and the RCMP didn't. Um, well, you're give, you're, uh, I mean, you're giving her pretty gentle gloves here, Dave. She not only said it once, she doubled down. She said, I know of specific case files and everything. And then I think on the third time around, she had to say, and not even just third time in one press conference, we're talking about like day three. She had to say, well, okay, there hasn't been any. The RCMP actually had to come out and say, we don't know anything about this. We don't have anything on file. Do you guys know how reluctant the RCMP would be to do that? Like yeah. they are not in yeah. the business of contradicting governments. They. I'm sure if you could have been a fly on the wall at K Division headquarters, they would have been like, oh my good grief, what is she doing? She's forcing us to either lie or, you know, come out against her. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it really is a mess. And I think if we weren't on the eve of the election, Minister Phillips would be um, in real jeopardy with her role, certainly in that portfolio. I think in the cabinet at all. And like, I, I get it. She's a partisan warrior. She is the counterpart to many UCP partisan warriors. And I, it's not that I begrudge her for that, but she really lost the plot here. And, you know, they've turned this issue, which is about at the end of the day, con conserving wildlife and, and land, which is just what everybody agrees with into a total mess. My understanding is that there was, um, there was a procedure and a consultation process in place. And the NDP essentially just didn't want to go through with that because I suspect it wouldn't have led to the result they wanted. But, you know, for a government that talks about how conservatives fail consultations and don't listen to people, like it's it's a real mess. And, and of course, politics comes into it. It has a lot of the same overtures as Bill 6. It's from a part of the province that, quite frankly, is very hostile to the NDP. And you see the mayors jumping on and all that. But Shannon Phillips has no one to blame but herself for this mess. And... Um, it's, it's not, it's not good. It's, I think she would be in real trouble if we, if this is 2018 and not 2019, I think she'd be in real trouble. I also, I think it's really interesting that you've got people like, uh, Cheryl Oates, who's the, uh, the ED of communications and planning for the premier's office, chiming in on Twitter about this and admitting 
you know, her, her tweet says the rhetoric around Bighorn has evolved into a nearly factless narrative. Some of the blame lies at our feet, some at the medias and some at the UCPs. And then she's, she's quote retweeting Matt Dykstra, who is a press secretary to Minister Phillips. Right. So it's like this. And works for her, by the way. And works for her, yeah. So, so the signal yeah. is, the signal of all the activity around messaging this says to me, major fuck up. Phillips like, screwed up, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And I agree with you, Ryan. I, like it's too, it's too late. It's too close to an election for, for Minister Phillips to be, I don't know, uh, disciplined. But I guarantee you, uh, the premier probably got on the phone with her and yelled at her a little bit. And it's 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 frustrating because this is, I mean, with the exception of, um, you know, there's a very very vocal opposition from from some people in the area, especially people ATV and off road um, off road enthusiasts. But for the most part, I mean, we've I've seen the polling. This idea, this this proposal is extremely popular in Alberta, like up like upwards of eighty percent and more. Um, it's yeah. it, it's 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 really. In terms of 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 passing this proposal, make you know, introducing this proposal, it's it's there's it's almost a no lose situation for it should be a no lose yeah. situation for the NDP because it is extremely popular and it's unpopular among a group of people who probably aren't going to vote for you who almost assuredly aren't going to vote for you in the first place. Well, um, and there was a passage. so so to, I mean that they bungled this so badly. Yeah, um, is 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 really disheartening because I mean really. I mean, as Elise Stolte wrote in her column, this isn't really anything new. I mean, basically, what they're doing is is they're they're it's a it's a thirty seven square kilometer area. It's been p- protected from industrial development already by the Eastern Slopes policy since nineteen eighty four. So, yeah. and and there are three provincial parks being proposed, which would take up one hundred and forty nine square kilometers of the thirty seven hundred square kilometers. So, they're going to create some new campsites and introduce a long standing progressive conservative policy into legislation. So yeah. it's really not a huge change, um, but but it is a popular change overall. But they but they really bungled this in terms of the communication. In terms of first of all explaining what exactly they were doing, and mm-hmm. and and not explaining that this is something that has largely already been effect in effect already for the past 30, 30 some years. And that's something that I find I found really frustrating with the with the with the NDP and doing anything having to do with rural, really rural Alberta, going back to the Bill 6 uh, yes. controversy, which exploded, which really shouldn't have exploded and really shouldn't have been introduced the way it was and could have been a, a win-win scenario for the government and for, for farmers and for rural Alberta. But the way they handled it was so ham-fisted. And, and so, uh, I mean, they used a sledgehammer when they should have, you know, actually gone out and talked to people. And I think that, that, that this is the case of, 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 they just, it was poorly communicated. They, they, did moves in Edmonton that really lit a fire in the rural areas, uh, and they really didn't need to. And so, it's, it's, so it, it, it is frustrating because because it, this really shouldn't have been uh, such a big issue. And it really, I mean, r- the, the blame really lies on on the government just in- implementing a, a really poor communication strategy and really yeah. poor really poor decision making. Well, this one has echoes even before Bill Six. It has echoes of the PC government with the expansion of tra- uh, electricity transportation infrastructure and it's the same there's like a third rail with that part of the province and anything that has to do with people from edmonton coming down and telling us how to use the land is just bad but i was going to say like this one of the three cases this was the easiest one for them to navigate because th- the people in this province who probably are the most interested in conservation include hunters fishers um, you know, people who are into outdoor activity, like there's a, a lot of 
red-blooded conservative voting people out there who also are huge land conservationists. So yeah, absolutely. They totally just made a mess of something. It was a it was a self error, and uh, now I think I heard that she is actually going to be attending some consultations in the end, mm -hmm. and. And so I guess we'll see. I don't know how much of this will actually happen. If there's no spring session, then maybe none of this will, will matter. The fact that she is attending them and some other pieces of intel tell me I think there probably will be a spring session. So we'll see if the legislation – is it even legislation right now? Or? No, it's, it's, it's in policy. It's in regulation right now. And that's part of – and that's something, that's something I wanted to bring up. And I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, is because part of this is, is – is, part of what the, what's being proposed is moving a longstanding – uh, government regulation that had been, been implemented by the progressive conservatives all the way back from the 1980s, putting that into legislation. And you're right, they do need to hold a, a session of legislature in order to do that. So this gives us a, an indication that maybe the NDP are planning to hold a, a spring yeah. session of legislature before the election uh, I think in, in 2019. Yeah, which I, 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 I'm starting to think they are. Um, which, which gives us an idea of when you know the election might actually be later in the spring if, if they're going to have it's, a session. It's not going to contribute to a peaceful orderly session, that's for sure. No, oh, well, hold it, holding a session right before, right before an election, it'll be, uh, it'll be a pre-election session. It's that time in the show where we open up the Dave Berta uh, listener mailbag. We've got quite a few questions today, which is great, awesome. We got a lot of people asking stuff. We're going to start with Jeff Salomons. Jeff asks, "What would it take to get a seventy percent marginal tax rate on the rich in Alberta?" just like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is proposing in the United uh, States. Uh, oh. <laughs> Ryan's having I, a heart attack. So, someone call 911. I think Ryan's, <laughs> Ryan's going into, uh, into arrest. Moneybags ba Hasman is not into this tax. <laughs> so can I just say, I actually really like her. Like, I don't agree with her on anything, but she is so compelling. Her original video we talked about on the podcast of her campaign ad, was amazing, like goosebumps, amazing, and I like her spirit. I like her fight, um, but holy smokes, seventy percent! And I know it's marginal, right? I'm just pulled up the Alberta marginal tax rates in here. Our top marginal rate is forty-eight percent. I don't know what that it is, is. That is way low. Oh come! I don't know what it is in the state of New York currently. Seventy. <laughs> so Leanne and I are watching a show about Trotsky right now, and uh, on Netflix, it's actually really good. Man, you start talking about 70% and it's like, that is, that's a lot. I mean, at, so you make a marginal dollar and you give 70% of it to the government? I, I'm going to die. I, I have died. I'm dead. I, 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 I don't know whether, uh, whether uh, uh, the, the, new, uh, the new congressman from New York is, is I mean, I don't, I don't get, get the impression that she's, I mean, she, she seems like a very smart person and I think she's, she understands politics and understands how, how messaging works, and I, I think that—I mean, I don't think she's under under any illusion that that this is going to pass anytime. This this would be implemented in the United States anytime soon, and I don't think it would be implemented in Alberta anytime soon. But this is how you move the dial on these issues: is you you stake out extreme more ex positions that would be considered extreme in the mainstream, and you drag the conversation this way. This is the kind of stuff that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has been doing, uh, and you know, Jason Kenney, who founded the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, has been doing. For the past uh, the past thirty years, is you, About, you you stake a more extreme position on taxes out, and you like drag, letting, drag the conversation that way, like letting people keep more of their money. No, can I, can I actually make another statement about defunding public services, cutting taxes for the richest rich, you know that kind of stuff. So the thing about AOC too is she is demonstrating, um, in a way, how terrible 
some of the GOP establishment are at like dealing with the new world. Oh my have, God, yes. You have a bunch of old crusty men, probably white, who think that releasing a video of her as an attractive, fun-looking college student dancing, that that would be some sort of bad thing. And just about the entire internet was like, first of all, it's endearing. Second of all, she's a millennial. Of course she's on the internet as a younger person. Like they, they I think that was one of her greatest media days ever. Um, everyone watched it. Everyone's like, oh yeah, she looks fun. Like that whole hell of a guy thing, or I'd like to have a beer with you. That helped her incredibly there. Mm -hmm. And they just can't seem to deal with it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they get better at kind of um, letting her uh, just at exposing herself as a bit more extreme and a bit, a bit less relatable. But that moment for her was great. All right. Our next question comes from Aiden Kroll. Aiden's asking, do the NDP have a chance of holding any of their rural ridings like Central Peace Notley? What do you guys think? Are they going to get crushed in rural Alberta? I, I think the the NDP are going to have a very hard time holding on to any of their rural seats in going into the next election. I, I think that there are a few seats that I'm going to be watching that I think might be interesting, have the potential to be interesting. Um, I think Lesser Slave Lake could be interesting with Daniel Larravee running for re-election. Um, I think that uh, the Banff Kananaskis riding, in terms of the way that they've redrawn it, um, it no longer includes Cochrane and the Cochrane area, which is a heavily conservative area. Um, that could be interesting because we've seen in the past few elections, uh, uh, communities like Canmore and uh, Canmore have been trending, voting more progressive, uh, both in provincial and federal elections with the, the NDP and then the federal liberals doing very well. That will be interesting. Um, but I think that, that in, terms of the, in terms of the rural areas, I don't expect the NDP to do well in traditional rural areas. Uh, I think that what, 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 I, what I will be watching is how the NDP do in in kind of mid-sized, small, mid-sized communities and on in First Nations communities, which have seen uh, a huge spike in voter turnout in recent elections. Uh, going into the 2015 provincial election and 2015 federal election, we saw um, First Nations communities show up uh, to vote in numbers that have, we haven't seen in quite, a, quite, a, quite some time in Alberta. And that can make a big difference if there's close races in rural Alberta. So yeah, there is always a chance, but... So you're telling me there's a chance. I, I give the NDP chances in most rural ridings about the same probability as Lloyd winning over uh, his love interest in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, I mean, even just the 20 minutes we spent talking about Bighorn. The, so you think of one of the southern rural Alberta ridings that was renamed Carson Siksika. I think I said that right? Yeah. And um, it's got one of the highest concentrations of uh, First Nations in it, communities. And would either of you bet any money on the NDP holding that seat? So I think they are looking at a total wipeout rule. I take your point that there are some kind of hippie communes. <laughs> um, some of the places like Canmore and Banff and Jasper have always had sort of a progressive vote, but overwhelmingly rural folks, starting with Bill 6, um, which, you know, you, you made a point about Bill 6 the other, a few minutes ago. The thing about it that it, that it betrayed, I think, was a real lack of understanding of like how family farms actually operate. Mm -hmm. You have this labor activist government bringing basically like WCB regulations into the workforce, which is what labor governments do. But it was it was almost like they didn't have a lot of farmers advising them that 
you know, some of this stuff is pretty controversial and it's going to take some time for family farms to think like how businesses in Edmonton think. Mm-hmm. And they just rammed it in and didn't, didn't consult. And so, you know, to our questioner, I would say there's not much of a chance of holding any of the rural seeds. So maybe one or two here or there, but I couldn't think of an exact one that I would actually predict for them. All right. Thanks for the question, Aiden. Our next one comes from Peter Fortna. Hey guys, just listened to the year end podcast, which was great. That's a terrific question, Peter. And we agree with you. (laughs) Here's a question for 2019. Was the Alberta NDP's biggest mistake in their first term? uh, Was it not using carbon levy dollars to pay down the deficit instead of using that money for green projects? What do you guys think that this money set aside for not general revenue is that something that the NDP hamstrung themselves with? Uh, I, I I don't know whether it really would have made a difference. I'm not sure they're. I'm not, I don't. I, I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'm not sure they're actually collecting enough money to pay down that they would allow them to pay down the, the whole deficit at this point. Um, no, I think I think in terms of of how the NDP handled the the carbon levy. I mean, it's, first I think that that it, it has never really been explained very well. To the general population, um, except the political case that if we do this, we'll get a pipeline. Well, yeah, but the, but they've never actually explained what they're going to do. What they actually get. they're right. never really clearly explained in a way that I think a lot of people understand what exactly exactly is happening with that money that's being collected from the carbon yeah, levy. Sure. So I think more clearly explaining what's going to happen and and demonstrating what's being done with that money um, might have act might might have helped sell the idea better to the general population. Um, explaining what exactly these green projects are. Uh, I'm not sure just using it to pay down the deficit would have would have made a difference. I think it might have agitated people because then it would have been just a general just a general tax. Um, it's all a general tax. Money is fun- fungible. Yeah, and I don't think Albertans or really people anywhere pay a lot of attention to saying like this thing funds this thing that the government does. Like I think people generally have a sense that it's a big bucket, mm-hmm. and it is. It's fungible. Like you you know. You can't really say, because I know at times the NDP have also said, well, if Jason Kenney is talking about a cut over here, what he means is no more schools because some fund builds schools. And it's like, well, you, I don't think people buy that. Like, I think that's... Well, yeah, it's, it's I think the, the, when they talk about the green line being canceled in Calgary or right. the West End LRT being canceled in Edmonton, it really is all just coming from government revenue, whether it's the, whether it's the carbon levy or not. There's one taxpayer and there's... One provincial government. Yeah. There, there, there are about four million taxpayers or three million taxpayers. But I know what you mean. Yeah, and when we, we, I think we've I think we've had this discussion on the podcast before. <laughs> Go back to episode twelve, and and you can hear right. us talk about whether there's one taxpayer or not. So, so Peter, I think their biggest mistake was the political case that she made that a pipeline mm-hmm. is the result of a carbon tax. And I know at the time, some people said, "Well, no, you shouldn't be making that argument." Uh, Dr. Leach, who I seem to mention a lot. Um, was saying the two have nothing to do with each other because technically in the document and in the car in the climate plan it doesn't say if we do this we get a pipeline but the premier is the one who made that argument she put her political fortunes in the hands of justin trudeau and albertans should never rely on trudeau's for very much because this is what happens <laughs> shots fired <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna start pivoting at the feds so. uh, our next question uh, two actually come from uh, scott Crichton. Uh, his first question is, if the Alberta Independence Party registers their 44 candidates for the election, could they take away votes from the UCP? I'm going to tell you guys a, a quote from a friend we all know, 
uh, a political guy, and he says the best thing you can do for conservatives in Alberta is give them choices. <laughs> How cynical! How cynical! <laughs> So, Dave, tell us a little bit about the Alberta Independence Party. What do you know about them? Uh, Only a little bit, though. Uh, they're, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a essentially a separatist party, from what I understand. They're, they're currently collecting signatures in order to be registered for elect with Elections Alberta. Now, this is one of, of a handful of new um, kind of. It's there's, over the past few years, there's been kind of a cottage, cottage industry of right wing fringe groups and and uh, and pseudo separatist and and just separatist uh, groups that have kind of popped up over the past few years since Justin Trudeau became prime minister, since Rachel Notley became premier. Um, these people are so on the fringes of, of, of the mainstream of Alberta politics right now. Uh, I don't believe the Alberta Independence Party has actually collected enough signatures or they haven't actually been registered as an official party. Um, I'm not sure if they'll be in a position where they actually are registered going into the next election. Uh, the Alberta Independence Party, or the, the idea of the Alberta Independence Party, or a group, I guess you could say a group of people identifying themselves as the Alberta Independence Party, ran candidates. It was either the 2001 or the 2004 election in Alberta. Um, they did the same thing. They tried to register the party. They weren't able to get it officially registered because they couldn't collect the, the I don't know, I think you have to, I think it's like 8,000 or 13,000 signatures you have to collect um, in order to be officially registered. So they ran as independents, not as independents, <laughs> but independents, independent candidates. Separate. Uh, they separate even from each other. They're, yeah, yeah, they're separate even. They're so independent. They're they're separate from each other. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I mean, I I don't expect that that this party will have a big impact going into the next election. Um, I mean, I guess they'll take the if if they run candidates, they will get votes. Uh, whether it's a handful of, I mean, I may expect a handful of votes in in the writings that they run because. Essentially, if you're if you're on the ballot, you're going to get votes. I'm not sure if there's ever been a case in Alberta, and I'll have to look into this and get back on the back to us on the next pod. But I'm not sure if there's ever been a case of a candidate who's got zero votes in an election in Alberta in a in a general election, provincial general election. They can vote for themselves at a minimum. I, although I guess not yeah. always. They might yeah. not be writing. Yeah. So I mean, I think they'll. You know, I, I I don't think that the Alberta Independence Party would take votes away from like, the NDP. Uh, no. I mean, I guess they'll take votes away from the UCP. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think it'd be, it would be extremely marginal, and I think you might see. I mean, you might see more sentiment in in some kind of more conservative rural ridings where the UCP dominates anyway. I mean, it'll right. be interesting to see how how these kind of fringe, independent or or pseudo independent movements. I mean, Derek Fildebrandt's Freedom Conservative Party is kind of toying with the idea of 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 separatism. They're saying, "Oh no, no, we're not for separatism, but if we're not equal, we're separate." Well, I think uh, he made it pretty explicit recently, actually. A new deal or separation. Yeah, or a vote on separation, yeah. And I think Maxime Bernier is actually coming out to a rally, to basically like a Derek Fildebrandt independence, Alberta independence rally, which is hilarious because Maxime Bernier is from Quebec. Yeah. Um, uh, that's coming up, I think, later this month in in Calgary. Yeah. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean... I don't know. I, I doubt this is going to be a huge issue. It's an issue for like a small minority of people. And I don't think that this, any of these independence parties will have a huge impact on the next election. No. And like the questioner said, will it take votes away from the UCP? <laughs> yes. But it tends to take them away in places where they can afford it the most. Like in these ridings where you're the, the these, these extreme conservative parties tend to be the most popular in places where the UCP can afford it or the CPC. So if you take a couple hundred votes away from the candidate in Karsten Siksika or in, I don't know, well, you know, a, a rural federal riding, 
Bippers Medicine hat or something. Yeah, the party is going to get 83.2 instead of 83.4. Like, it's not a big deal. What's interesting about Maxime Bernier and actually why it is kind of a threat is he's taking potentially votes away from a ring of conservative ridings around Quebec City where we actually can't really afford to lose much. Like, it's interesting. Those actually are kind of marginal seats. Mm -hmm. So... Um, that one changes the ballgame a little bit, and I don't really even fully understand it because Quebec ridings are hard to fathom from out here. But yeah, that's and I, yeah. And I guess in terms of in in in, in the handful of ridings, the marginal ridings where there'll be a tight race between the NDP and the UCP, having uh, an Alberta Independence uh, Separatist Party of Alberta, a Freedom Conservative Party candidate, a uh, I don't know whatever uh, a banjo picking party. Yeah. Of, uh, of Alberta candidate, that's great. There should be more more fringe conservative parties, yeah. and 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 that could that that's where it could hurt the UCP. But overall, I don't think it will. Well, I mean, overall, I think that, that I don't think it'll make a huge difference. That's why I like the fringe uh, left wing parties, like the Alberta Party, being on the ballot as well. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, speaking of where the parties lie on the political spectrum, Scott's second question is: Is the Alberta NDP a social democratic government? Do you guys know what constitutes a social democracy? Yes. Like, does anyone get to say something is or isn't that? Isn't that like saying, is it conservative? Like, isn't that kind of a subjective analysis? Well, yeah. I think I think there's probably like a spectrum of 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 what you know of, of what policies get implemented. I think that the NDP. This is how I'm going to put it. I think the NDP is a social democratic party. I think the Alberta NDP government is definitely more of a, of a moderate it's basically a liberal government a center-leftish liberal government with progressive conservative tendencies and my ndp friends won't exactly like me saying that but i, I do think that, that that's that's the 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 line they've been walking been trying to uh trying to tiptoe over the past four years ryan do you agree with that assessment yeah i think largely i mean i'm not an expert on social democratic governments or the ndp but i think dave's mostly right there all right. Uh, our next question is from two guys, I think. Brett Stephen and John Schmuel ask, do you think the federal liberals will win any seats in this year's federal election in Alberta? What do you guys think? Is, is, are the liberals going to get totally blocked out of the province? I, I think the liberals will have a very high... I think that you know they, they, they won those two seats in Calgary in the last election. I think they'll have a very difficult time holding on to those seats in Calgary. Um, I think Edmonton is always a little bit of a different, uh, you know, different political environment than the rest of Alberta. Um, you could see both incumbents hold on to their seats. Uh, I, th I think that if if one one MP is going to win re-election in in uh, in 2019 uh, in Alberta, I think Randy Boissonneau is probably the one I'm going to be watching. I think Emergy Sohi. I'm not going to count him out because I think he's uh, he's an incredible retail politician and he's, he is popular in in his riding. Uh, but with all this stuff going on with pipelines and the economy and him being natural resources minister, I don't think that's that is necessarily going to help his chances of re-election. And when he was uh, first elected, it was by like hundreds of votes. It wasn't. It was very oh, tight. Yeah. It was like I think it was a recount. It was super close. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was just about to say. We talked about this on a previous episode, and I don't think anything's changed since then. The way to look at Sohid, and yeah, he is formidable for sure. But it took a lot for him to win that seat and he barely won it. So I would not want to put much money down on any of the four um, liberal seats remaining liberal, or I know the previously liberal seats being liberal returned. So, and then as far as the provincial side, 
uh, did we get to that question about the provincial side? Or am I jumping? That's, that's our next question. So I'm going to jump Adam's gun here. We had another question from someone named Kevin Powell. How do you see the Alberta Liberals faring in the spring election? And I, boy, I don't see much traction there for them either. I mean, they haven't really even been overly active. They have a leader who's run a couple times and hasn't really achieved much success or awareness. Um, I think, I can't imagine who the diehard Alberta liberal person still is when you've got the Alberta party, which is essentially the Alberta liberal party rebranded. Like I, I actually don't know what the point of the Alberta liberal party in 2019 is or what niche on the spectrum they stand for. So I don't see it being very successful, but Dave, you, you have a history with that party. What do you think? I think that, yeah, and, and I, w I was involved with the Liberals in the, in the 2000s when Kevin Taft was party leader. Uh, there were 16 or 17 MLAs in the legislature. They were official opposition. Uh, we were winning by-elections in uh, Ralph Klein's riding when he, when he retired. Um, so I was with the Liberals when they were kind of on an upswing and then a, a very stark downswing going into the, uh, into the 2008 election where, where the party lost half of its seats. Uh, and and was really really decimated and and the, the liberals never really recovered from the 20, 2008 election and then that the two thousand eight election the departure of Kevin Taft who who I think was the last like real competent leader of the party um, it co kind of coincided with the rise what rise of the Wild Rose Party and and the Wild Rose kind of took up that um, the 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 opposition mantle and I think a lot of the kind of opposition vote in a lot of areas of the province just moved to the wild rose for people who just wanted to vote for an opposition party to the Tories. And then the Tories swallowed up a lot of the old liberal vote, um, which eventually went to the, to Rachel Notley's NDP. That's my, my speculation, but I, the liberals just really aren't in a, in a good position provincially. Um, they have one MLA left, David Swan, uh, who's a, you know, very, very nice man, very well-meaning, uh, very sincere, uh, you know, kind of the kind of person you we really probably should have more of in Alberta politics because I do think his his he is totally sincere about his dedication to public service, um, but that doesn't necessarily make a, make for good politics or make for you know uh, uh, make for electoral success. I think that the Liberals will be like best case scenario they hold on to one seat, um, which I think is a like a far chance from happening. Uh, David, you, David Kahn, the current leader, is running in David Swan's riding, so he's running in Calgary Mountain View. He's running against, I think that the three other parties have what I would consider star candidates running. I think the Liberals will be very lucky, like Hail Mary, like count your blessings lucky if they hold on to this one seat. I don't, I, I don't think they are. I think, that, I think that this next election will be the first time since before 1986 where the Liberals will not have a presence in the Alberta legislature. You you both answered this question incorrectly. The oh. answer to the question, how do you see the liberal, the Alberta Liberals faring in the spring election, is who? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> all right. Our next question is an anonymous question, uh, and the question asker says, if Jason Kenney does not form a majority government, what do you think he will do? Will he remain leader of the UCP? Does he remain in politics? What do you think, Ryan? Speculating on things like that is a fool's game. Who knows? Um, I think Mr. Kenny has spent a whole career in the public eye and pursuing public policy. So I'd imagine he'd be doing something like that. However, the next election goes. I think he also mentioned to us once that he has a musical background and his grandfather was in a, 
Canada's most popular big band in the 1940s. So yeah, but, but we didn't ask him whether he played an instrument or not. And I thought about that after, so we should right. have asked him. So I don't know if like that might just he might not have any musical talent. Or but maybe, he's got the DNA for it though. So or maybe he plays the fiddle or something. Like I think if 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 he played an instrument, it should be something like he should pull out and like, you know, make it more personable, like Stephen Harper did with the piano. So Jason Kenney has never not crushed every single election in front of him. He used to routinely be in the 80s on his federal seat. He oh, but like in, in like dark, deep, dark, conservative, blue, blue southeast Calgary. But he won the nomination. And then he destroyed his opposition for the PC leadership. And then he was able to get a huge percentage of the vote on the unity vote. And then he won very handily the united leadership vote my point is jason kenny um just keeps winning what's that oh now we need another youtube clip what's that song all i do is win yeah all i do is win by dj Khaled. and until he doesn't win that uh you know i don't think he's thinking about plan b right now so, so what you're saying is he's due for a loss <laughs> yeah you could say that I, I, I mean, I guess looking at the question is, is if he doesn't form a majority government, if he forms a minority government, if the UCP are able to form a minority government, I think he stays premier, um, at least until that works itself out. Mm -hmm. um, I, if, he, if he doesn't win, if the UCP loses the next election and Rachel Notley wins another, forms a minority government or forms a majority government, um, I guess we'd have to see how that all plays out. I, 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 I truly believe that Jason Kenney's real goal is to get back to Ottawa eventually and try to become prime minister. So I think that that is in play as well in terms of, I think that not winning the next election would be a huge blow to any future um, federal um, federal plans he has in his first for, for the rest of his political career. Our next question is from Dave Jackson, and I believe we sort of answered this already in the show, but he's asking, will the Alberta legislature be recalled before we go to the polls for a provincial election? What do you guys think? Yes. Yeah. Uh, when we did our December year-end show, I would have said no, based on a few things, that they have to submit a budget if there's a spring session or at least a fiscal update. But between responding to the statements, the request for statement of interest, and also just some other sort of signs that we're seeing out there, I actually think there is going to be a spring session, maybe brief. Typically, in other, in other uh, cases, governments have done a budget, and then they've maybe done one other thing, and then basically dissolved. So I don't imagine it'll be a long session, but I'm starting to get the feeling there will be a session. And David, that means you'll be there working long hours. David works for, if it's the same David Jackson, I think it is, he works at the ledge. So yeah, it is. Yeah. He could be, uh, for him, this is a matter of putting in eight hour days or <laughs> 18 hour days or whatever it is. So, yeah. so, 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 so the moral of the story is, is David, you're probably not going to be, uh, have your vacation hours, uh, vacation request approved for spring 2019. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our last question comes from uh, Edmonton Tater on Twitter, or Dan, as he as he claims to be called. If the Alberta Party were to win enough seats to hold the balance of power in the legislature, who would they side with to form government? I think uh, Dave and I are about to have our old argument about if the Alberta Party <laughs> is actually a conservative party or actually a left of center party. I, I, I. I I don't know. I mean, Alberta's never had a minority government. I, I have a hard time believing we're going to have a minority government going into the, uh, after the next election. Um, maybe we will. Maybe the, the mold is truly broken, and I think that'd be fantastic. But uh, I don't think we'll have a scenario where the uh, where the Alberta party is going to win enough seats to hold the balance of power in any legislature, no matter uh, no matter what the composition is. 
uh, after the next election in, in terms of who they would form government with. I mean, I think they'd be naturally more naturally inclined to to ally with the with the UCP. Ryan and I have had this this debate before. I think that the Alberta Party is basically a kind of a a moderate conservative party. They're the the conservative party without all the homophobes, um, uh, without the social conservative baggage. Um, so remember, I think I, I think what's that? Or memberships, or dollars, or or that, or that too, or organizations uh, on the ground in eighty-seven ridings. Yeah. Well, well, as we've seen in in in, pre, in 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 recent elections, that doesn't always matter when it comes to election day. Uh, but uh, but um, yeah, I think they'd be more naturally inclined. I mean, I guess it depend what the issues are. I mean, as we've seen with with other governments in, in Canada, more even more recently, who've uh, who've formed kind of coalition type arrangements with with smaller parties, British Columbia, New Brunswick, for example. Uh, the smaller party is able to kind of put out and 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 dictate conditions in terms of what it would support, what 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 it would like to do, or what what it would need in order to support a party in government. So maybe we'd see a situation where the Alberta party would say, okay, you know, okay, Premier Notley or okay, Premier Kenny, uh, here we'll support you on on money bills. Here are our five conditions of stuff that we want to see get done within the next three or four years, and you have our support. And as long as you do this, then so. I mean, I guess it would depend, but I think they'd be more naturally inclined to uh, to support the UCP. Yeah, the only nuance, I guess, and Dan, I don't know if you meant this specifically, but I don't think we will ever see an actual coalition government where minority parties sit in the cabinet and things like that. Like, I think that era is gone. I know the, I believe the Trudeau government in the 70s actually had some, or did they even have any NDP cabinet ministers? It no, was, it, it was it was the Roy Romano government in Saskatchewan. Right. They had a they were they had they actually had a coalition with the Liberals, and I think there were one or two Liberal MLAs who were actually in the Saskatchewan NDP cabinet. That, 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 that that's like a real coalition. Other than that, yeah. I mean, it's like you can make these kind of legislative arrangements, like they have in British Columbia and, and New Brunswick. Yeah, yeah. I think too. I think this is the Alberta Party's dream scenario. In fact, I think I heard uh, Rick Fraser talk about how this is one of their kind of like explicit pitches that they would love to be in a position to be able to dictate to the two larger parties, you know, some moderation on either of them in their position so that they can leverage things that they want. But so I don't think I don't think I think they'd be fairly uh, agnostic. Like I think that's basically their whole mo. But it's a it's hard to imagine a scenario where. How that would work you'd have to have like the two big parties with 30 seats and you know it i can't see it either but i think if they got to that position they would be relatively short timeline deals they would support one budget at a time and it would be on the condition of several things that they've decided to do like dave said similar to what we're seeing in bc right now with the referendum around uh our voter reform and the green party so I mean, for political nerds and observers, it'd be great. It'd be very exciting, but I, I can't imagine it being, being real. But I also couldn't imagine the opposition leader crossing the floor, or any of the other crazy stuff that has happened here in the last decade. So, you truly never know. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you to our producer Adam Rosenhart for helping us put the show together, and a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. Send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at, at Dayberta or on the Dayberta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at Dayberta.ca. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year.